It is a prison of your mind. The worst sort of prison. It's a prison that doesn't require any restraints. This episode of Wildlife Podcast contains adult themes and subjects that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. His 1943 paper, A Theory of Human Motivation, Abraham Maslow introduced the Maslow Hierarchy of Needs. He represented this theory with the horizontally divided pyramid, each portion of that pyramid naturally getting smaller as you ascend. At the bottom of the pyramid, the largest segment is physiology, followed by safety, belonging and love, esteem, cognitive, aesthetic, self-actualization, and finally, transcendence. Maslow described these terms as the pattern in which humans' needs generally move. You cannot continue to the next step, or in this example, continue to ascend up the pyramid until the previous need has been adequately fulfilled. The first four and largest segments of this pyramid contain what Maslow defines as the deficiency needs. Physiology, safety, belonging and love, and esteem. If physiological needs, such as shelter, water, and food, are not met, the person may become ill and die. When that person's safety needs are not met, such as security of body and family morality, post-traumatic stress can occur. Individuals who do not feel love or belonging, such as healthy interactions with others, may experience depression and anxiety. And lack of esteem or the inability to self-actualize can lead to depression and anxiety. The lack of these fulfillments when it comes to these needs is what is called deficiency. So when an individual has unmet needs, they are motivated to fulfill them by any means necessary. Those of us who are unable to fulfill those needs on our own become susceptible to controlling manipulative groups or people. When all we want is to belong, How far are we willing to go to fulfill these needs? Are we willing to sacrifice the traits of individualism that make us unique? And when the world you're brought into denies you these needs, it makes you solely reliant on the people around you. Are you strong enough to leave? Everyone you meet has a story. This is Nicole's. My name is Nicole Gorgeous. I'm from Southern California. I live near Joshua Tree National Park and I've lived in Southern California my whole life. Well, I was born in Washington, which is where my parents are both from. And I was born into the Jehovah's Witness cult. Both of my parents were indoctrinated when they were children. Neither one of them really should have been parents for for different reasons. My upbringing was strange to say the least. It was a really lonely, depressing childhood because everything was always extremely unstable and any abuse that I endured that I did report, I was only ever punished for or blamed for or the abuse was was made worse because of it. 
So I did try to report this abuse and CPS was actually involved when I was a child. Due to some marks on me, the school called and they came to the house. I remember hiding under the table and, and lying to them and saying everything was fine at home. Growing up in a cult, you are not allowed to form any sense of individuality. And if you try to or express any kind of individual opinions or even really ask questions, you are punished pretty badly and sometimes shunned. And when they shun you, it really destroys your entire life especially because they usually raise you to be extremely dependent on them. So most of the time, shunning includes losing your job, your spouse, possibly your custody of your children. It means that everyone that you know will never speak to you again, that you are completely alone. It is a prison of your mind. It's the worst sort of prison. It's a prison that doesn't require any restraints. You have no choices. For instance, I was in gifted education programs and would have gone to college, I'm sure. I also was a pretty good actress and singer and was interested in the arts. Like I was actually cast in a professional play out of elementary school, but when my mother found out, she kiboshed it because I would miss um, meetings, which is what they call church. When I was a child, it was five times a week. And then it would also be added door-to-door uh, -door work, which is when we go knocking on the doors. That's, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witness vernacular for knocking for the knocking on doors, which you're forced to do from from birth. My dad and mom grew up in the cult. They both had some odd incest and covert incest going on in the house. They had no normal boundaries, which led my dad to do things like get drunk and climb in bed naked with me and cuddle me, you know, watch dirty movies and speak really just massively inappropriately about sex, put me in extremely inappropriate situations. My father is extremely, extremely unstable and I was very secluded even though I went to school until I was 13. It was, I wasn't allowed to have friends over. I didn't, I was not allowed to celebrate holidays, so I was taken out of class anytime something like that came up. Well, I was bullied in school for being different, for being weird. Embarrassments like going to the door, knocking on the door, having to preach to kids from your school. So I really didn't know what normal was, and uh, I, I knew it wasn't right. And I do remember from the age of seven telling my mother that our life was not normal and we needed to leave. My mother was very abusive. She endured odd abuse at home, and it was a very cold household, not affectionate. She would beat us so hard with any implement she could get or that she'd break it in her hand. She'd beat us with wooden spoons. A lot of this would happen at the meetings, out in service if we were misbehaving, slap us in the back of the head. Mostly my mother did bizarre things like this. When I was probably four or five, I got sick and she made some sort of homemade concoction. They didn't really believe in getting medical attention very much, you know? I wouldn't drink it. She put a hose down my throat, put me in the sink and held me over the sink till it came out my nose and vomit came out my nose and then made me drink more. I, if I cried, she would smother me with her hands or a blanket or a pillow or whatever was nearby until I'd pass out. My mother, part of the time, was a pioneer, part of that time an auxiliary pioneer, and part of that time a regular pioneer, which means uh, different hours. I believe it was 90 and 120 hours. So that means she devoted a certain amount of her time monthly 
to what they call the, th the service work or the theocratic work, which means trying to indoctrinate new members into the cult. And uh, really disturbingly, like, like most mind control organizations and cults, uh, they really take advantage of any members of society that are in any kind of weakened condition or in any way vulnerable. And that could be from someone who's just lonely and doesn't have family to someone who has a child with a severe fatal disability. They take advantage of that and use it as a control tool. You won't see your sick child in the paradise or the new system, which is they believe that uh, the faithful ones will be in, in earthly paradise as an afterlife, or if they make it through Armageddon, they will live through that and it, the earth will become a paradise. And only 144,000 people will go to heavenly realm to serve with Christ. A good lot of it is straight from scripture, but uh, interpreted in, in a convenient way for them. The first person that tried to rape me, he was my dad's best friend. He had me call him Uncle Zach. He would molest me in front of my dad and he did nothing. He groomed me from the time he met me when I was 12. There's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance that is involved, whether it's a family member or not, they create cognitive dissonance. It means that your brain has two alternating ideas that are oxymorons of each other that you know both to be absolutely true and your brain cannot deal with that. So it kind of has to almost choose one. So it's like that with the grooming too, uh, when you don't tell anybody that when they first do something inappropriate. And then sometimes they allow themselves to get caught on a level so that you feel like the person saw something and they didn't do anything. For instance, Zach's wife caught him one time. He pushed me up against a boat and was holding me against it, kissing my back. And uh, was wearing a bathing suit and he caught me in the dark when we were at the beach with my family and scared me and his wife walked around the corner and caught him and all she did was slap him on the arm and never brought it, brought it up to me again and things like that made me think that it was possibly normal or at least that no one would do anything or blame me and so it didn't seem like something I could report and instead I started self-harming and acting out in other ways. I didn't even understand that I had been molested really until I was watching an Oprah episode when I was like 20 and burst into tears because she was describing the whole process of grooming a child to molest them and I realized that that's what happened to me. I um, went and told the other elders, it became an investigation. They. Uh, reproved him, which is less than a disfellowshipping, but men always get off with lighter than any woman that does anything. It's extremely sexist and the women are always blamed in whatever crime or sin you supposedly committed. It was a slow waking up. And to be honest with you, I was in the rare percentage of people who actually cannot say that I ever really believed it. I thought it had good things about it. I, I believed that it would help me have the things that I wanted in life, which is a stable home life that I didn't have, to be able to be a stay-at-home mom, which can be difficult in this world and not always supported. You have a community to help you in, in a cult. It was a hypocrisy. It was something that was missing from what they said that they were. If you sin, and that means they can, they can punish you, reprove you, whether publicly or privately, 
uh, take away privileges in the congregation, and then finally they can shun you. And shunning can last anywhere from six months to permanently. And you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get out of being shunned, including attending all of the meetings without being able to speak to a single person. Uh, it's awful. It's degrading. They make you feel like you are dead. I have lost a lot of people to this. Some of my two best friends that I grew up with both overdosed because they could not deal with the abuse they had endured. People waking up, like things like I reported to the elders in the congregation and my mother and father uh, what Zach had done to me. And Zach molested me from the time I was 12 till I was 17. And I just couldn't see a way out of it. I started to see for myself experiencing these things, but I couldn't face it. And then I got married at 17, basically to get out of the house. And I married one of my abusers. And he was older than me. He drugged me and raped me for years off and on. He's a somophiliac, I guess. He's turned on by women being passed out. Uh, he also was convicted of spousal battery for attacking me while I was holding our then three-year-old. I didn't report any of these things or follow up on any of these things because I was made to feel in fear to report. The last time I was raped by a cult member was 2013, and it was my best friend's husband who was a servant in the congregation, so he held a position in the congregation. Somebody you should be able to trust, they're supposed to be shepherding the flock on a level, somebody that you can go to. Somebody I trusted and knew for over 10 years as well, and uh, certainly my husband at the time trusted him. He raped me, and... The elders in the congregation were actually possibly more traumatic than the rape itself. This is after I had already reported every other abuse I'd endured to them uh, previously, and they had not gone to the authorities. They forced me to come in and talk to them about what happened and tell them what happened. And then they asked me questions like, what color were your underwear? How short were your shorts? Why were you alone with him? They go off of old biblical deuteronical law on some things. There's something called a two witness rule. If there aren't two witnesses to something, it didn't happen. And in old biblical law in Deuteronomy, if a woman didn't scream loud enough that someone heard her, then she was basically complacent in it and she'd be stoned to death with the rapist. When I was raped that time, it was the second time someone had attempted to rape me. The first time, when I stopped struggling, he lost his erection and couldn't do it. Something broke in my brain causing rape paralysis. It basically means you cannot move. It's a survival technique that animals use. You've seen animals play dead. It's something that you, sh you only do when you believe that you're about to die. Because that first experience ended with when I stopped struggling, he couldn't do it. Next time, I uh, couldn't move. I couldn't move. So it was also very difficult to explain that to these men, these old white men who had no understanding or training in any way of how to deal with the victim of any kind of crime, let alone a sexual assault. I was self-harming really badly after the elders interrogated me and I deteriorated mentally. My PTSD was extremely bad. I was even getting calls from the guy's wife blaming me. And because I had been sexually assaulted throughout my life, it was easy for me to blame myself. 
It was easy for me to be in that headspace. They said things like, you're so pretty, I couldn't help myself. So I thought if I wasn't pretty, maybe this wouldn't have happened. I cut off all the hair off of one of one side of my head. Uh, my husband stopped me that day. Then he came home and I was trying to burn the entire one side of my face. He stopped me, but did not get me any help. He came home one day and I was catatonic on the bathroom floor. He put me in bed, but did not get me any help. Finally, one day I woke up and realized that for one, my self-harm was out of control. I'm an unusual self-harmer. I burn uh, and I have some fairly severe burns and scars from that. It's the only thing that causes an intense enough feeling that will stop the horrible feeling that the PTSD flashbacks are causing at the time. I was having thoughts that everyone would be better off without me though. And I even had a plan how I was gonna kill myself. Uh, see, I looked at my children and I realized that I wasn't thinking clearly and that they needed me and that I had to get them out of there because the elders made me feel like it was my fault and told me I couldn't report my rapes and I knew that that was wrong. I knew it was wrong to tell me I could not report a crime. What if he did it again? I committed myself to Loma Linda Behavioral Health and that's when I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. So this is really the first help I actually got and some actual honesty, but they sent me home with very few resources and a lot of medication and a husband who was controlling everything that I did and who enjoyed drugging me and having sex with me while I was asleep, videotaping it and using it to try to blackmail me. Uh, also using the fact that I went to go seek mental health help to try to blackmail me to threaten my child custody uh, so that I wouldn't leave him. When I got out uh, in 2013 of the hospital, my husband had turned into a severe alcoholic. I couldn't see any way out. He had made sure I had no career, no control over our finances. Com he had complete control over my life. And finally, because he became dangerous to our children. I was gone for about 16 hours. And when I came back, my two, six and, and four-year-olds were in the bathtub alone. And he was passed out with a martini on his chest. I uh, threw it on his face, couldn't wake him up. So I packed my three kids in the car and took them to my in-laws. It was the only safe place I had to go. My home life was obviously dysfunctional. I didn't really have anywhere else to go. My father-in-law went to go check on him and found him in bed with a shotgun, saying he just needed to control something. So there was an escalation in the emotional and physical threats and violence. And um, when I went to Washington at the end of 2014 to help my cousin have a baby, I went and took my oldest child with me. I was gone three weeks. When I came back, I was served with separation papers. He was trying to take full custody. I said, are you having a nervous breakdown? Uh, is this because you're an alcoholic and you're afraid I'm going to take custody of the kids? You know, we can work this out. I wake up a couple days after getting back from Washington and my children are gone and they won't tell me where they are. And by they, I mean him and his parents. Uh, Jonathan, my husband, comes into the bedroom and says he wants to talk to me. He just wanted some privacy. I was like, okay. So I come out and my mother-in-law, my mother and my maternal grandmother are sitting there. I do not have a close relationship with anyone in that group. They start saying, we're worried about you. We think you need some help. This is because I had come out and told all of them that I didn't believe in the cult anymore about a month before this. They said, I just wasn't acting like myself. And I said, because I don't believe in this anymore. So that doesn't mean I'm gonna 
make the kids not go. It doesn't mean I'm gonna, I'm, I've really changed. I'm the same person, you know. I want my family to be peaceful and get along. And then they felt a little railroaded. And my mother-in-law said, this isn't what I signed up for. And I said, I need to know where my kids are right now. This isn't okay. Jonathan starts to escalate, yelling, screaming, shoves me up against a wall and won't let me leave. I say, John, you need to calm down. Let's go outside and talk. And uh, so we go outside to talk. And I said, uh, look, I need you to understand something. I have forgiven you so many things. Uh, I forgave him like a good Christian wife. And at this point, we had been married for almost 12 years. I looked at him and I said, I need you to understand something. Our marriage is over. Now you fucked with my kids. And that's the one thing you cannot do. That is my boundary. Uh, I need you to understand this is over. You're getting a divorce. He started crying, got on his hands and knees and grabbed my hips and looked up at me tearfully. And I asked him to leave. So I decided to move out to my sister's with my three children temporarily until we could get something legal written up because he was being so abusive, I was afraid. You cannot leave your husband. There's something called a get in Judaism that you have to get from the rabbi besides the legal divorce to show that you're scripturally free to actually get remarried. It's like that. So they trap you. I actually had to, in open court, explain this and asked for an adjudication of the divorce because his personal belief system, his religious belief system, was that I was his property as his wife. This is a bad man. There are two open sexual assault cases pending against him, including one by a 13-year-old who is his own daughter. They have custody of my children. I believe that they have terrorized and brainwashed my children. Two of my children have told me and multiple other adults they're terrified if they don't do whatever their father says. He has connections uh, to the Sheriff's Department and Riverside County Sheriff's Department and Riverside County CPS, so does the cult. They were forcibly removed from me by an off-duty police officer wearing full SWAT gear, threatening my oldest daughter that he would arrest her while we were hiding in a shelter working on a restraining order against this man and got temporary custody of them on alienation charges because my children didn't want to go see him. I couldn't force them to and they wouldn't tell me what he had done. In May of 2020, my 13-year-old told me that she thought maybe her dad was putting something in her food because she was not remembering going to sleep and waking up sleepy. That's when I started to freak out because he would drug me and rape me and she looks exactly like me and she was the age I was when he met me. And um, I think he couldn't keep having sex with me while I was conscious after I grew up. So I was extremely concerned. I, ex I immediately called the authorities and we reported this. So I had to do something. I was worried that any of my other abusers could have continued to hurt others as well. So I called the sheriff's department and I finally told them everything that had happened to me. And in the end, I said, I don't know what of these things are crimes. I don't know what of these things are still reportable. I don't know what the statutes of limitations are. I don't know anything. I barely out of this cult. I really don't know a lot about the real world, to be honest. At the end of the conversation, the person said, every single thing that you told me is a crime. Almost all of it is reportable. So there's no statute of limitation. I did not know that. I think a lot of survivors don't know that. Unfortunately, the first two detectives I had, uh, my first two SACA investigators, which sexual assault and child abuse unit, the SACA unit, I had to go into the police station and give 30 to 40 hours worth of interviews. Um, 
They also made me come back and try to call these people and entrap them and get them to admit what they had done. They have given me zero orders of protection. They've given me zero protection of any kind. I've endured everything since then, from hiding in shelters to having my house broken into, blackmails, threats, harassment. Since this has happened, I have extreme insomnia, lost weight, my health has deteriorated. In their eyes, I am the devil because I'm an apostate. I am fellowship for apostasy, which I'm quite proud of. It's the worst offense, by the way. In Greek, it means to seek one's own truth, but they see it as to speak out against God. Apostates speak out and speak truth about what happened. That's why I was disfellowshipped. I told that I was raped because they told me not to go to the authorities. They said it would bring reproach on Jehovah's name. And there was tremendous pressure from every single person I knew to go along with whatever I was told. And there would be punishment if I didn't. I could be shunned as well, and I was threatened. I will say you, you can survive a lot more than you think that you can survive. There's a scripture that says God won't give you more than what you can bear. I take that with a grain of salt. I, I always hated it like, yes, he is. He's giving me more than I can take, but I don't believe it that way anymore. I try to think of what I'm capable of. This is something worse than I've ever been through. I'm living through all of my worst nightmares from being wrongly accused to having my children taken away, feeling feel like my heart has been ripped out and, and given to my abusers nonetheless. Once you get labeled a victim, it's, um, it's a very bad stigma especially if you're a victim of multiple crimes. People look at you like, why did this happen? And the truth is that if you've been a victim, you cannot blame yourself. If you or someone you know are currently in an abusive relationship, we implore you to get the help that you deserve. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. Wildlife Podcast is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Brandon Pennington. Music, sound design, and additional editing by Dan Semen. If you or someone you know has a story that you would like to share on the podcast, you can reach out to us directly at wildlifepod1 at gmail.com. That's wildlifepod, the number one, at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes and remember to like and subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at wild.life.podcast to stay up to date on new episodes, bonus content, or just to send a message and say hi. Hey guys, stick around after this brief sponsor break for a few final thoughts on this week's episode. Hey guys, thanks for sticking around to the end of this week's episode. As always, I want to thank Nicole for agreeing to come on and share her story. We're coming up on the last few episodes of season one for Wildlife Podcast, and the amount of support that Dan and I have been given is incredible. So I just want to thank everyone from the bottom of our hearts. With that being said, I know you've heard me say it before, but we're opening up submissions for season two of Wildlife Podcast. So if you or someone you know has a story that you'd like to share, you can reach out to us directly at wildlifepod1 at gmail.com. And also, guys, it would mean a lot if you can like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and also share the podcast with your friends. We've received a 
ton of messages from people this season telling us how certain episodes have helped them and their struggles. So share the podcast with someone that you think may benefit from one of the stories. Until next week, guys, see ya.